Section 1 of On the Witness Stand. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Tina Ding. On the Witness Stand. Essays on Psychology and Crime by Hugo Münsterberg. Section 1. Illusions. Part 1. There had been an automobile accident. Before the court, one of the witnesses, who had sworn to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth, declared that the entire road was dry and dusty. The other swore that it had rained and the road was muddy. The one said that the automobile was running very slowly. The other, that he had never seen an automobile rushing more rapidly. The first swore that there were only two or three people on the village road, the other that a large number of men, women, and children were passing by. Both witnesses were highly respectable gentlemen, neither of whom had the slightest interest in changing the facts as he remembered them. I find among my notes another case where everything depended upon the time which had passed between a whistle signal from the street and the noise of an explosion. It was of the greatest importance for the court to know whether the time was long enough to walk a certain distance for which at least half a minute was needed. Of two unbiased witnesses, one swore that the time was less than ten seconds, the other that it was more than one minute. Again, there was a case where it was essential to find out whether at a certain riot the number of guests in the hall was larger than the forty who had been invited to attend. There were witnesses who insisted that there could not have been more than twenty persons present, and others who were sure that they saw more than one hundred. In a case of poisoning. Some members of the family testified that the beverage had a disagreeable sour taste, others that it was tasteless, and others that it was sweet. In some Bowery wrangle, one witness was quite certain that a rowdy had taken a beer mug and kept it in his fist while he beat with it the skull of his comrade while others saw that the two were separated by a long table and that the assailant used the mug as a missile, throwing it a distance of six or eight feet. In another trial, one witness noticed at the seashore in moonlight a woman with a child, while another witness was not less sure that it was a man with a dog. And only recently, Passengers in the train which passed a courtyard were sure and swore that they had taken in at a glance the distinct picture of a man whipping a child. One swore that he had a clean-shaven face, a hat, and was standing, while another swore that he had a full beard, no hat, and was sitting on a bench. The other day, two most reliable expert shorthand writers fell sure that they had heard the utterances which they wrote down, and yet the records differed widely in important points. There is no need of heaping up such illustrations from actual cases, 
As everyone who remembers the last half-dozen murder trials of his city knows with what regularity these differences in reports of witnesses occur, we may abstract from all cases which demand technical knowledge. We want to speak here only of direct observations and of impressions which do not need any special acquaintance with the matter. Wherever real professional knowledge is needed, the door is, of course, open to every variety of opinion, and one famous expert may conscientiously contradict the other. No, we speak here only of those impressions for which every layman is prepared and where there can be no difference of opinion. We further abstract entirely from all cases of intentional deception. The witness who lies offers no psychological interest for the student of illusions, and we exclude all questions of mental disease. Thus, there remain the unintentional mistakes of the sound mind, and the psychologist must ask at once, are they all of the same order? Is it enough to label them simply as illusions of memory? To make memory responsible is indeed the routine way. It is generally taken for granted that we all perceive our surroundings uniformly. In case there were only 20 men in the hall, no one could have seen 100. In case the road was muddy, no one can have seen it dusty. In case the man was shaved, no one can have seen the beard. If there is still disagreement, it must have crept in through the trickery of memory. The perception must be correct. Its later reproduction may be false. But do we really all perceive the same thing? And does it have the same meaning to us in our immediated absorption of the surrounding world? Is the court sufficiently aware of the great differences between men's perceptions? And does the court take sufficient trouble to examine the capacities and habits with which the witness moves through the world, which he believes he observes? Of course, some kind of a common sense consideration has entered, consciously or unconsciously, into hundreds of judicial decisions, inasmuch as the contradictory evidence has to be sifted. The judges have, on such occasions, more or less boldly philosophized or psychologized on their own account, but to consult the psychological authorities was out of the question. Legal theorists have even proudly boasted of the fact that the judges always found their way without psychological advice, and yet the records of such cases, for instance, in railroad damages, quickly show that the psychological inspirations of the bench are often directly the opposite of demonstrable facts. To be sure, the judge may bolster up the case with preceding decisions, but even if the old decision was justified, is such an amateur psychologist prepared to decide whether the mental situation is really the same in the new case? Such judicial self-help was unavoidable as long as the psychology of earlier times was hazy and vague. But all that has changed with the exact character of the new psychology. 
the study of these powers no longer lies outside of the realm of science. The progress of experimental psychology makes it an absurd incongruity that the state should devote its fullest energy to the clearing up of all the physical happenings, but should never ask the psychological expert to determine the value of that factor which becomes most influential, the mind of the witness. The demand that the memory of the witness should be tested with the methods of modern psychology has been raised sometimes, but it seems necessary to add that the study of his perceptive judgment will have to find its way into the courtroom too. Last winter, I made, quite by the way, a little experiment with the students of my regular psychology course in Harvard. Several hundred young men, mostly between 20 and 23, took part. It was a test of a very trivial sort. I asked them simply, without any theoretical introduction, at the beginning of an ordinary lecture, to write down careful answers to a number of questions referring to that which they would see or hear. I urged them to do it as conscientiously and carefully as possible, and the hundreds of answers which I received showed clearly that everyone had done his best. I shall confine my report to the first hundred papers taken up at random. At first, I showed them a large sheet of white cardboard on which fifty little black squares were pasted in irregular order. I exposed it for five seconds and asked them how many black spots were on the sheet. The answers varied between 25 and 200. The answer over 100 was more frequent than that of below 50. Only three felt unable to give a definite reply. Then I showed a cardboard which contained only 20 such spots. This time, the replies ran up to 70 and down to 10. We had here highly trained, careful observers whose attention was concentrated on the material and who had full time for quiet scrutiny. Yet in both cases, there were some who believed that they saw seven or eight times more points than some others saw, and yet we should be disinclined to believe in the sincerity of the two witnesses of whom one felt sure that he saw 200 persons in the hall in which the other found only 25. My next question referred to the perception of time. I asked the students to give the number of seconds which passed between two loud clicks. I separated the two clicks at first by 10 seconds and in the further experiment by three seconds. When the distance was 10, the answers varied between half a second and 60 seconds, a good number judging 45 seconds as the right time. The one who called it half a second was a Chinese, while all those whose judgments ranged from one second to 60 seconds were average Americans. When the objective time was three seconds, the answers varied between half a second and 15 seconds. I emphasize that, these large fluctuations showed themselves in spite of the fact that the students knew beforehand that they were to estimate the time interval. 
The variations would probably have been still greater if the question had been put to them after hearing the sound without previous information. And yet a district attorney hopes for a reliable reply when he inquires of a witness, perhaps of a cabman, how much time passed by between a cry and the shooting in the cab. In my third experiment, I wanted to find out how rapidity is estimated. I had on the platform a large clock with a white dial, over which one black pointer moved once around in five seconds. The end of the black pointer, which had the form of an arrow, moved over the edge of the dial with a velocity of 10 centimeters in one second. That is, in one second, the arrow moved through a space of about a finger's length. Now, I made this clock go for a whole minute and asked the observers to watch carefully the rapidity of the arrow and to describe, either in figures or by comparisons with moving objects, the speed with which that arrow moved along. Most men preferred comparisons with other objects. The list begins as follows. Men walking slowly, accommodation train, bicycle rider, funeral cottage in the city street, trotting dog, faster than trot of men, electric car, express train, goldfish in water, fastest automobile speed, very slowly like a snail, lively spider, and so on. Would it seem possible that university students trained in observation could watch a movement constantly through a whole minute and yet disagree whether it moved as slowly as a snail or as rapidly as an express train. And yet, it is evident that the form of the experiment excluded every possible mistake of memory and excluded every suggestive influence. The observation was made deliberately and without haste. Those who judged in figures showed not less variation. The list begins, one revolution in two seconds, one revolution in 45 seconds, three inches a second, 12 feet a second, 30 seconds to the hundred yards, seven miles an hour, 15 miles an hour, 40 miles an hour, and so on. In reality, the arrow would have moved in an hour about a third of a mile. Not a few of the judgments, therefore, multiplied the speed by more than 100. In my next test, I asked the class to describe the sound they would hear and to say from what source it came. The sound which I produced was the tone of a large tuning fork, which I struck with a little hammer below the desk, invisibly to the students. Among the hundred students whose papers I examined for this record, were exactly two who recognized it as a tuning fork tone. All the other judgments took it for a bell, or an organ pipe, or a muffled gun, or a brazen instrument, or a horn, or a cello string, or a violin, and so on. Or they compared it with as different noises as the growl of a lion, a steam whistle, a foghorn, a flywheel, a human song, and whatnot. 
The description, on the other hand, called it soft, mellow, humming, deep, dull, solemn, resonant, penetrating, full, rumbling, clear, low, but then again, rough, sharp, whistling, and so on. Again, I insist that everyone knew beforehand that he was to observe the tone which I announced by a signal. How much more would the judgments have differed if the tone had come in unexpectedly, a tone which even now appeared so soft to some and so rough to others, like a bell to one and like a whistle to his neighbor? End of section one.